But I really think it needs to be read as a whole. It needs to be thought of as a whole. And so I'm going to try to cover it as a whole this morning. But I want to begin this morning with an article that I read a couple weeks ago. Perhaps some of you read this article or a similar article like it. It was an article about the convicted serial killer, David Berkowitz. If any of, if that rings a bell with any of you, in the 70s, Berkowitz killed six random people in New York City. And he terrorized the city by leaving notes as he killed these folks. He left notes and called himself the son of Sam and promised to kill more. Wicked man and a wicked set of deeds. But what the article was reporting was that David Berkowitz, who is serving, I think, multiple life sentences in prison, has decided that he is never going to seek parole. That he never again will seek parole, but will spend the rest of his days in prison. Why, you may ask? Well, the article didn't specifically say his reasoning for why he was never going to seek parole, but the article did give testimony to the fact that God in His grace has grabbed a hold of David Berkowitz. That David Berkowitz, has, who is once known as the son of Sam, has now written a book called Son of Hope, in which he gives testimony to the forgiveness that is his now in Jesus Christ, his Lord. And one can only think that his decision to stay in prison for the rest of his life is to pay the consequences for all the damage he has done in this life, but also because, as the article went on to say, David Berkowitz has a vibrant prison ministry in which he is ministering to those around him and giving testimony to God's grace. It was a great article. I'm always amazed when I read articles that are so striking, striking testimonies of God's grace and God's forgiveness. You know, in the New Testament, there's a story A striking story of such forgiveness. Luke describes a woman whom he calls a woman of the city who came to Jesus as Jesus was reclining in the house of a Pharisee. Pharisee being the good, religious, moral type of his day. And this woman came to Jesus just loving Him. Weeping over Him. Washing His feet with her tears and with oil she had brought. Loving Jesus in a risky, in a vulnerable way. And what does Jesus say to the Pharisee when the Pharisee objects all this lavish, risky love by a woman of the city? Jesus says, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And it's that last phrase of Jesus that that gets me. Do I really 
know? Do I really understand how much I've been forgiven? Sure, David Berkowitz does. But do I? Do, do I really see my sin? You see, the Pharisee needed Jesus just as much as the sinful woman who was washing Jesus' feet. I need forgiveness just as much as the son of Sam, David Berkowitz, needs forgiveness. And yet, I'm so easily like the Pharisee. I'm so easily like the older brother in the parable of the lost sons. I think about my own upbringing in the church, the son of a pastor. I don't really think that I'm that hard to love. I kind of think it's easy for God to love me. I've never committed a crime. I've never done drugs. I've never been drunk. And yet, as Charles Spurgeon, that wise preacher of long ago, said, too many think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of the Savior. What I want us to see this morning through Psalm 106, I've tried to pick psalms that are just different, that give us a different perspective. And Psalm 106 is really just a gospel psalm. I mean, there's a lot there, there's a lot of history that we could get lost in, but Psalm 106 is just a gospel psalm. A gospel psalm that shows us two things. It shows us our record of failure, and it shows us the trail of grace. The trail of grace that is ours, through God's mercy and through God's provision of Jesus. So there's just two truths that I want us to think about this morning as we walk through Psalm 106. Two truths for you to remember and meditate on as you go from this place. Number one, we all have a record of failure. We all have a record of failure. See, God begins to prod our hearts in this direction as He shows us the failure of His nation of long ago. Verse 6 begins with this confession that's a, it's a pile, it's a threefold pile of words. Our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. And then over the course of three periods of Israel's history, the exodus from Egypt, their wandering in the wilderness, and then the beginning of their time in the promised land, Israel commits a number of sins, but count, recounted for us here in Psalm 106, at least eight sins that the psalmist chooses to highlight. Really, seven words. Seven words is the content of the psalm. And I want to briefly just go through them as we walk through Israel's story. If we were to think these, of these in terms of sins, sin number one, Sin number one, unbelief. Unbelief. This is really verses 7 through 12. Israel had just witnessed ten incredible supernatural miracles brought about by God through the hand of Moses, culminating in not just the release 
of Israel from Egypt, but the plundering release of Israel from Egypt. Exodus 12.36 is one of those little but amazing verses. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. And so they plundered the Egyptians. Can you even imagine? Verse 35 of Exodus 12 says that they took gold, they took silver, they took clothing. 24 hours, these people who were oppressing them, now they were going up to saying, give me all the gold in your house. And it was being given to them as they walked out of that land. And yet here at the Red Sea, at the very beginning of their journey, they're already forgetting. Exodus 14, 10 and 11 documents that when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt? That you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? The sin of unbelief. Well, verses 13 through 15 document the second sin of Israel. The second in their record of failure. We might call it discontentment. Discontentment, verses 13 through 15. If it wasn't enough that they were free, they had just witnessed two walls of water stand up on end as God led them through dry land. It wasn't enough that it was literally raining bread, enough to feed thousands upon thousands of people every day. No, they didn't remember that. Instead, Numbers 11.5 tells us what they remember. They say, we remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and oh, the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. And so they cry out to the Lord and they say, give us meat that we may eat. And they say sometimes that you ought to be careful what you ask for because they got it. They got it. God gave them their meat in the form of quail, but His judgment against their discontentment also resulted in the burial of many who grumbled. God's judgment came upon them. Unbelief, discontentment, And then verses 16 to 18, jealousy. Jealousy. You see, the sin narrows a bit down to 250 men. Here we have recorded for us the rebellion led by Korah, which is told in Numbers 16. The accusations against the Lord's servants, Moses and Aaron, was that they were exalting themselves over God's people. Moses didn't even want this job. And now he's being accused of liking this job too much. So the people grumble. And the judgment of God pours out upon them and 25 of them are consumed and swallowed by the earth. Sin number four. 
Idolatry, verses 19 through 23, a familiar story to many of us. Moses is on top of Mount Sinai. The people are impatient for his return. They couldn't wait to hear from God, and so they made a God of their own. And what does Psalm 106 say? It says, one that eats grass. The Scriptures almost mock God's people here. If you're going to choose something to worship, surely you can do something better than an ox that eats grass. And yet, they rebelled and they made an idol. And then sin number five, which is really back to sin number one, the sin of unbelief, verses 24 through 27. The psalmist returns to the sin that began the journey. This time, God's people are on the edge of the promised land. Spies are sent in. The enemy looks fierce. The odds aren't good. And this is in some ways the tipping point for the Lord. He's had enough. And we read in Numbers 14, Truly as I live, as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test ten times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers. None of them who despised me shall see it. They've been, they pushed the Lord too far. And God's judgment is coming upon them. Unbelief, discontentment, jealousy, idolatry, back to unbelief. And then verses 28 through 31, apostasy. Apostasy. If we were to turn to Numbers 25, we would hear this new episode of, of renouncing allegiance to the Lord and turning to idols around them. And this episode too is met by God's judgment in the form of a plague. Sin number seven, I know we're going through these quick, but sin number seven, What's really number six, because we have unbelief twice. Verses 32 and 33. The people grumble for water. And this is the last straw for Moses, who in disobedience to the Lord's command, strikes the rock rather than speaks to the rock in his frustration. And his actions, however minor we think Moses' actions are, They cost him the privilege of entering the promised land. And then the last sin, the last record of failure, verses 38, excuse me, verses 34 through 39. God's people are commanded to rid the land of its spiritual or its inhabitants and not to commit spiritual adultery, not to abandon the Lord for the neighbors. For the neighbor's idols. And this too results in the judgment of God. What a history. What a history. What a record of failure and judgment that is God's people. How could they possibly forget all that God had done, all that God's hand had performed in their midst? How could they easily, so easily lose sight? 
But that's their story, right? That's not our story. Our story is different. Because we remember. We never forget. And where I want our hearts to go this morning is that our hearts are really no different than those of Israel. Our hearts are really no less forgetful. Now what we see in Psalm 106 and those seven words that make up the record of Israel's failure is simply the depth of human sin carried out in a specific time, in a specific place, in a specific context. And that's in part where this psalm takes us this morning. Think for just a moment about just three, just three of the sins that we recounted as we walked quickly through Psalm 106 and some of the history of the people of Israel. Just think about unbelief. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. It's in many ways the root of all sin. When we don't believe God's promises. When we don't believe God's truth. When we worry about what clothes we're going to wear. When we worry how God is going to provide. Jesus tells us not to worry about the things of this world to not worry about the stuff of earth. The New Testament goes so far as says, don't be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about anything. And yet how easily it is just to not believe that God is in the midst of our circumstances. That God is worthy of our trust. To remember that God has been faithful and will continue to be faithful. Yes, our unbelief is unique to the unbelief that was shown by Israel. Our unbelief is often unique to us. It's often individual in our own hearts and in our own lives, in our own circumstances, and not corporate as Israel's unbelief was. But it's no less failure. It's no less rebellious than Israel's unbelief. Or think about discontentment in our lives. It's been called the the grass is greener on the other side conspiracy. The catchphrase to discontentment is, if only, fill in the blank, if only, And yet how easy it is for us to struggle in our world, to struggle in this culture that focuses so much on what it has and what it doesn't have. It's a unique struggle for young people, I know. I remember the desire to keep up with those around us We become discontent. And Hebrews 13 simply says, be content with what you have. Paul models learned contentment in whatever circumstances in Philippians 4. 
were no less rebellious than the people of Israel. Or think about idolatry. Oh, idolatry. Ezekiel 14.3, the word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel and he says to the elders of Israel, these men have taken their idols into their hearts. You see, God has always been concerned about the heart. But what's going on in our hearts? And that's why John Calvin stated that our hearts are idol factories. You've heard that before. We are so good at making good gifts of God ultimate gifts or ultimate things in our lives. Tim Keller, one of the pastors in our denomination, has written a great little book that if you haven't read, I commend it to you. It's called Counterfeit Gods. And he defines an idol in that book as anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. You see, we don't need golden calves, grass-eating bovine. We don't need wooden figurines. We've got our careers. We've got our material things, our technological toys. We've got our families. We've got our children. And the golden calf of long ago is not So absurd when you think about some of the things that we put in the place of God in our lives. I read a great quote from Archbishop William Temple who said, Your religion is what you do with your solitude. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. Where do you go? when there's nothing else to do, when there's no one else around. You see, the distance between us and ancient Israel is not so wide. It's this universal exchange that is spoken of in our psalm. It's spoken of in Romans chapter 1 as we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. And so God's Word in Psalm 106 and this record of failure of the people of Israel makes us see, I hope, our record of failure and makes our hearts ask questions like, what are we looking to for comfort, for security? What are we daydreaming about? What are we investing in? 1 Corinthians 10, Paul talks about idolatry and then talks about the idolatry of Israel, and he says, now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. See, well, this morning I want us to see Israel's failures point out our failures. Especially you Pharisees out there. Especially you older brothers. Do you see your sin? 
Do you see your record of failure? We all have a record of failure. But the psalm isn't ultimately about God's people. Because there's this thread, there's this stream that runs throughout the psalm, throughout all this dark history, all this failure. There's a stream of grace. And that's the second thing I want us to think about and where I want to leave us this morning is that the Lord is a God of intercession. The Lord is a God of intercession. Yes, the people forgot. And they forgot again. And they forgot again. And yes, we forget. And we forget again. But we read in verse 45 of Psalm 106 that God remembered. That God always remembers. And so throughout the psalm and throughout the scriptures, we have this sprinkling of someone standing in the gap. Someone standing in the gap. The provision of an intercessor. See, first it was Moses in verses, verse 23. Fueled by his anger against the idolatry of his people, the Lord tells Moses on Mount Sinai that he will consume them and make a great nation out of Moses instead. And Moses pleads. He intercedes. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it. And the Lord relented from the disaster that He had spoken of. And then in verse 30, there's Phineas. This is a bit of a lesser story, not quite as well known. Aaron's grandson, future high priest of Israel, in response to the worship of Baal that he found in Rome in Numbers 25, and all the sexual immorality that accompanied Phineas, rightly concerned about the honor of the Lord, decides to take matters into his own hands. And he defends God's honor. And to this, the Lord says in Numbers 25.11, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. You see, his actions, because he was God's representative, as a future high priest of Israel, his actions were commended, though 24,000 people still died as a result of that sin. See, God tells us in Psalm 106, amidst this record of failure, that he is a God of intercession. 
of sending intercession for his people. But what we see through Moses, what we see through Phineas, is that it's an intercession that's woefully incomplete. Yes, Phineas succeeded in preventing further death, but the damage had already been done. Moses' actions saved thousands of lives, but 3,000 still died by the sword, and countless others by the plague that God sent. And so Psalm 106 is about pointing us beyond Phineas, beyond Moses, to the intercession of the Lord Jesus, the eternal one who's able to cover past, present, and future sin. The intercession of these two men was incomplete. They saved lives, but they could not pay for themselves. And yet the intercession of Jesus is complete. Let me remind you the words of Hebrews 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken of later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And this, friends, is the cure for idolatry, for unbelief, for discontentment, is seeing once again the glory of Christ. Psalm 106 is a rich psalm, a challenging psalm which I want to, to, to prod us to think about our own hearts, to think about our own sin, to think about our own record of failure, but not to leave us there but to leave us with the great intercessor that stands stands in and culminates a long line of intercessors that the God of grace has sent for you. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. If you don't know this Jesus this morning, then you don't have an intercessor. All you have is point one. All you have is a record of failure before a God of judgment and a God of holiness. If you don't know this Jesus this morning, I call you to come to Him. But for those of you who know and love Him, oh, glory in Him once again. That in realizing and focusing and fixing your eyes on the great intercession of Jesus, that you might then in turn put away those idols. Put away that unbelief. Put away that discontentment and get lost in the treasure of Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for Psalm 106 and its rich history. History that spanned dozens and dozens of years, decades upon decades. 
And yet history that is so valuable for us in just pointing us, pointing us once again to our need, our need of you. 